0: is everybody? Fine and dandy. You find a new way to describe your, yourself, Justin, every time I talk to you. <laughs> uh, good to see you guys tonight. I'm glad you all are here. Uh, if you would, with me, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We are doing something else this evening, as you saw. Taking a couple week break from Acts, Jason will be preaching to us next week, Um, and tonight we'll be in the the book of Philippians, chapter 1, open up to, we're going to look at verse 27 through the end of the chapter, we're going to start in verse 21. So let's read, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Please pray with me. Father, your word is good and it is true and it is right. Forgive us for doubting your word, for believing the inventions of our own mind, for believing the lies of Satan and of the world. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth in your word tonight. Soften our hearts and help us to believe your promises and to obey your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, who wrote this? The Apostle Paul, that's right. Do you know where he was when he wrote this? He was in prison, that's right. Why was he in prison? For preaching the gospel, that's right. Um, and the context is that he, we see in verse 26, he wants to go visit the Philippians again, right? He wants to go see them. And why is that? Uh, From the passage, what is it, why does he want to go visit them? Yeah. Yeah. And he wants their confidence in Christ Jesus to abound through his coming to them again. Um, So he wants to visit them. And he gives them this encouragement, whether or not he's able to make it. Because he acknowledges that God may or may not make a way for him to go. He may stay in prison for the rest of his life. Um, He may get out. He doesn't know what the circumstances are. But he gives them this encouragement, regardless of what the circumstances will be. Regardless of whether or not he's able... To visit them, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, what does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? That's the question we want to answer, or we should want to answer when we hear Paul say that live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We should ask ourselves, what does that mean to live worthy of the gospel? So first of all, from that statement, from Paul's statement, uh, a command, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, we need to understand and accept that there is a particular way to live that is worthy according to the gospel. There is a way to live that honors the truth of the gospel and displays the power of it. And there's a way to live that disgraces the gospel and disgraces the power of the gospel. And you're either going to be living in a way that honors and is worthy of the gospel, you're going to be living in a way that dishonors the gospel. There's no middle ground with how we live, right? This is like we were learning at the retreat. There's no neutral ground. You're either living in accord with the truth of the gospel and living in a way that's worthy of it or in a way that's unworthy. So think of it this way. What would you... Oh, sorry. What does it mean to live as a good American citizen? You laughed, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you got ideas of what that means? <laughs> <laughs> to be American? Yeah, America. <laughs> the, uh, you watch Fox News. <laughs> flag <laughs> right Right. Uh, but seriously... What what would you put at the top of the list of what it actually means to be a good citizen? Yeah, pay, pay your taxes. Have good, you, have <laughs> you have a degree. You guys are all fancy. Okay, no, okay. Let's see. Um, let's let's make it uh, not just American of any country. Okay, to be a good citizen of your country. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> You obey the laws. Sorry, maybe I made it too specific by saying America. I should have just said of anywhere, of you know, China or America or Japan or Texas. um, (laughs) um, Yeah, we should put at the top of the list of what it actually means, not you know our our added you know extra things of what we think being. It doesn't have anything to do with you know apple pie or baseball. But what it actually means to be a good citizen would be to obey the law. Right? We Can we agree on that? And so my question then is, so how do you become a citizen? Do you become a citizen by obeying the law of a particular nation? Yeah, most of you were born into American citizenship. Right? You didn't. It's not like you were born and then you decided at some point that you would want be an American citizen, so you d- decided to start obeying the law. No, you were born in, as an American because your parents were American. Um, and it's not obeying the laws that made you an American citizen. Um, but you obey the law because you're a citizen, right? Because you live here, because of your citizenship, you obey the law to fulfill your calling as an American citizen. And it's the same with being a Christian, with being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We are born, not physically, so not because you're born to your parents. We're born, not physically, but by the Holy Spirit into citizenship in Jesus' kingdom. Colossians 1 says that God the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's a transfer of citizenship that has taken place for us. God has taken us. He's rescued us. Christ has captured us and brought us into his own kingdom and made us citizens of his kingdom. And he calls us not just to be citizens in name, not just to call ourselves Christians, not just to call ourselves Americans, but he wants us to be citizens indeed. To live according to the laws of his kingdom. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Philippians, Christ has bought you. He's brought you into the kingdom of light by his grace and by his power. Now live like a citizen of that kingdom. And he says that by saying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is how we're brought into the kingdom of Christ. Now live as a citizen of that kingdom. Now, before we move on, I want to be clear about something. Christians aren't the only ones God calls to live according to His law. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's not that Christians... It's only once we become Christians that we have an obligation to obey God. No, I don't want us to lose sight of what Nate preached to us at the retreat, which was what? In a nutshell. Yeah, that's right. That Christ is king... Over everything, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He made every one of us. He made every one of the non-believing students around you out there. He made every one of your co-workers and your family members. He made all of them and has a right to the obedience of every man and every woman. So what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? It's simply this. The Christian lives in cheerful submission to the laws of the kingdom. The unbeliever lives in rebellion against God and his word. Okay? So, once we become Christians, it's not like we lose the obligation to obey. It's actually, in a sense, heightened. Um, And the rebellion of unbelievers doesn't free them from God's rule any more than... uh, Any more than if you decide, you know, that you're going to rebel against the laws of this land. That wouldn't, you know, free you from living under the laws of this land, right? It's the same way. Though an unbeliever rebels against God and rejects his law, that doesn't actually free them from living under God's law. They still are under God and under his law. Um... So, in physical birth, everyone is born into God's creation and lives under his lordship. Because he made us. And the Christian actually has a double obligation to serve God and obey his law. Because God is not only our creator, but our redeemer. So, he made our body. He owns our body by right of being our creator. And then... By redeeming us, by calling us out of our sin and covering us with the blood of His Son, He owns us. We've been bought with a price. He not only made us, but He bought us and redeemed us from sin. Which means the Christian has an hei- a heightened obligation to obey God and serve Him. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not just worthy of a creature of God, but worthy of of the calling that has been placed on you, being a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, being a son of God by the birth of the Holy Spirit. So, now we need to answer the question, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, let's look in this passage. It means a lot of things, but let's see what Paul says right here, and I want to focus on just a few things. So he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, and I just want to say, Paul doesn't want their obedience, their faithfulness to depend on him. He doesn't want them to live in a right way just because he's going to show up and be there. He doesn't want them to live in a worthy manner just to impress him. He says, whether I come or not, I want to hear that you're living worthy. Regardless of if I show up or not. Okay? So he wants them to be living in a holy manner. For Christ's sake. Not to impress other people. Not even to impress him. He wants them to walk in a manner worthy. Regardless of circumstances. Who comes, who doesn't come, whatever. So he says, Regard, or whether I come and see you or remain absent. He, wants, he says, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. So first of all, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel looks like striving together. Okay? Striving with one another. Striving together. So the first part of that is striving. That we are called by the gospel and by Christ's redemption of us to strive. That means... Living in a worthy manner requires effort. That we are to give ourselves, to make sacrifices, to strive. Uh, So what sorts of things do you strive for? Good grades. That's an excellent one. That's exactly what I was thinking. Because it was amazing to see everyone during tests last week looking just like dead and beaten down, um, or a lot of you were just, you know, tired and could barely keep your eyes open, And you know, I got midterms, and, um, and why, why were you like that? Because you'd been striving, right? You'd been staying up, you'd been studying. Studying is something, if you're in school, most of you strive at. You give hours of effort and time and forsaking sleep and food and, and friendship <laughs> to lock yourself, you know, in a room and, and strive to study to get good grades. Um, for some, it's practicing. For some, it's less noble things than grades. For me in, in college, it was a lot of striving to... It really good at video games um, but we, we give ourselves to striving in various things. Jason knows what i 'm talking about, not because he he participated, but um, so we give ourselves to striving after all sorts of worldly things it 's not a bad thing to strive after grades it 's not a bad thing to strive in a job. Um, But we need to take that striving that we're willing to do for those things and transfer it to what a striving in the kingdom of God should look like. Those things should just be a shadow of our striving after a worthy life in the gospel. Are we ever distraught over the state of our souls as much as we're distraught over the state of our GPA? Are we ever distraught over the state of the the states of the souls of others as much as we are over what grade I'm going to get on this test tomorrow? Do we strive for the kingdom of God? We're willing to strive for all sorts of things. We ought to strive all the more together, and that's the next part. Paul says strive together for the faith of the gospel. Firm in one spirit with one mind. This isn't just something that you do. Okay, It's central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And living in a worthy manner. It's central to be striving together with one another. To live this life. Um, um, we have to spur each other on. To love and good deeds. Um, We have to share our burdens and do this work together. It's not, our spiritual battle isn't just about us fighting by ourselves, you know, against our own private sin and never letting anybody in to know who we really are. Um, Back to the studying thing, when I was, or whenever I studied, I hated doing group studying. (laughs) I see some nodding heads there. I hated doing group studying, mostly because I was proud um, and could do fine on my own. You know, I could get good enough grades. I didn't need to, like, have to deal with anybody else and, you know, having them have wrong answers and them slowing me down by having to explain things to them or, uh, you know, risk having my grade affected by other people doing stupid things and in group projects. But it's just pride and selfishness. And that, that's how we often treat our spiritual life. Is that we don't want to strive together. Even if we're up for striving, we're going to go strive by ourselves for certain things and feel spiritual. And don't want other people dragging us down. Don't want to have to worry about this guy's sin over here. He just doesn't understand. You know, he's just, just full of sin. He's just going to slow me down in my spiritual growth. If I try to help him deal with his sin and his weakness or her sin and her weakness. She's not as spiritual as I am. This is how we often think. But central to the gospel, Christ is called a people to himself. Titus says he's redeemed a people for his name, zealous for good deeds. We are to strive together to help one another, to know each other's struggles. Imagine being in a good study group where you're helped by other people and you help them because you all have weaknesses. Um, And this is how we should be for the kingdom of God, is striving together. Um, One example of this was at Bible study this past week. Um, We had our liveliest discussion of the year yet, talking about the question, when did God create the earth? Um, and we talked a lot about some intricate things about, you know, old Earth versus new Earth creationism and all these things, and um, and we talked for a long time. Um, and the intention, the discussion was pretty intense. Um, but we got to the end, and <laughs> so I know I'm pretty sure more than one person in the group was wondering, you know, why why did we need to talk about all that. You know, does it really matter? What's the point? I'm tempted to think of that. Um, But it was important for us to argue about Scripture, about what God's Word teaches, to seek a better understanding of it. I could just sit here with what I think Scripture means um, and never talk to any of my brothers or sisters about that, but just assume um, that I'm right and have everything down well as well as I need to and not worry about you know growing or anything Um, but we need to engage with one another and be able to see where we differ and figure out if those differences are actually separating us like worth separating us in terms of the faith what's central to our faith and what we believe about the gospel or we need to figure out where we differ and where we need to live in unity in spite of differences And we need to be strengthened by one another in our arguing so that we can be more equipped to interact with the world. Because there were arguments and things that people said in our discussion that helped me. I thought, you know, I've never thought of that before. And that's very helpful if I'm going to be talking to somebody and loving to somebody who doesn't believe in Scripture. And so we need to be humble and fight with one another, not in like a, you know, a, a striving just to... Bite at one another and be superior but to build each other up to train for battle, to be strengthened to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge of scripture so we need to strive together that's the first thing second in no way alarmed by your opponents we're not to be alarmed by opposition now I have a funny example for this and that 's when Jason and I play ping pong. <laughs> Jason, I think knows what I, he might know what i 'm going to say. What am I going to say, Jason? <laughs> Jason and I are pretty evenly matched in ping pong in terms of technique we 're like head to head, but i 've figured out that how I beat Jason is I just stay calm. <laughs> And I just keep my calm and my cool and I psych him out and he gets all tense and, and he gets alarmed when he starts to get behind. And I just have to, you know, keep it level and cool. <laughs> um, but we aren't to be alarmed by the opposition. Now, I don't know if I'm going to beat Jason at ping pong or not. We do know... That Christ has won. We do, know that, we do know that He is King over the people that we will come in contact with. That He has all authority, past tense, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, He says. We have God's Word written for us, preached to us, that is our confidence and our rock. And so there's no reason for us to be alarmed in the face of opposition. None at all. And we shouldn't be easily fooled by people who are just trying to remain calm to psych us out. Don't believe anyone's lie that they're happy and healthy and content living in rebellion against God. It's not true. Anyone who thinks that they are happy and healthy and content, living and rebelling against God, God's word, has been fooled by Satan. They're fools. Be confident in the truth of God's word. Your very confidence in God's word is a sign of condemnation to unbelievers. That's what Paul says. He says, do not be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them. You're not being alarmed by their opposition to God's word and his truth and to the gospel. You're not being alarmed is a sign to them of their destruction and of their condemnation. So, refer to God's word confidently as your authority. It is authoritative. And people, when they lash out against God's word... That is, it's their self-protection. It's fear on their part. It's a visceral, visceral reaction to you because the more confidence you show in God and His Word, the more they know in their hearts that they stand condemned before that very Word. You know God's Word to be true. It is true. And the more confidence in God's Word and the more you speak God's Word and speak of God and of His goodness and of His judgments, confidently, the more others will be drawn either well, they're be drawn to make a decision to reject or to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll see their need for it. The more you speak of God, the more confidence you show in His Word. And the flip side of that is that your confidence in God's word and the truth of these things is a sign of your salvation. So it's a sign of the condemnation of those who don't believe. It's a sign of your salvation to yourself and to other Christians. Now that doesn't mean to put on a mask of confidence so that other Christians will think that you're saved. What it means is that if you're timid and weak and faithless, go to the cross and find your confidence. If you're timid and weak and faithless, it means that that is sin, that you're not trusting in God and in his word. And and Christ has died for the sin of timidity, the sin of weakness, the sin of faithlessness. Go to the cross, find your confidence in Christ and the work that he has done. And seek to grow in your trust in God. Seek him for faith. It says in this passage, right, that the faith is a gift. For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, the implication there is that your belief in Christ, Christ is a gift from God. And so seek Him for that gift. So strive together. Do not be alarmed by opposition. And lastly, suffer for Christ's sake. And this too is essential to living a life that is worthy of the gospel. is suffering for the sake of Christ. And what does this passage say about that suffering that might be shocking to us? It should be shocking to us. It's shocking to me. Verse uh, 28. It's been granted to you. What sorts of things get granted? Good things. That's right. Gifts. It's It's another word for give, right? Granted given, you get uh, grants for, you you know, you get money that's grants for school or grants for, for work, and that's a good thing, isn't it? A grant for something to be granted to you? What in the world, why would Paul say it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake? Because suffering for Christ's sake is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing that God gives to us. How? Why is suffering a good thing? Suffering for Christ's sake. Okay. Okay, so it's a sign of faithfulness. That's right. Um, and more than that, uh, hey, yeah, let's turn over to... I just thought of this, but Philippians 3. Uh, Let's look at Philippians 3. I'm just going to start in verse 7. And I wanted to read this anyways because it was in the song that we just sang. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. "...of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Our suffering as Christians, for the sake of Jesus Christ, is a testimony to our union with him. It's a sweet thing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because we are told that we will, by the Holy Spirit, be united with Christ, made one with him... And that means in everything. It means in his life, in his death, in his sufferings, and finally in his resurrection. And so as we suffer for the gospel, it testifies to our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and no suffering, as we just read that Paul said, no suffering has the, even a comparison to the joy of knowing Christ is our Lord. Nothing. Look at Paul. What did Paul suffer? What? Okay, yeah, death, imprisonment, beatings, shipwreck. Shipwreck. How is shipwreck suffering for Christ? It's (laughs) (laughs) It's cold and wet. Okay, okay. What about when you're sick in bed with a stomach flu? (laughs) Perish the thought. Yeah, if you're having flu-like symptoms. Is that that suffering for Christ? No? No? Yeah. So our response to suffering is, is what tells whether or not we're suffering for Christ, right? So James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter encounter sufferings of various kinds. Um, and that can, can be anything. And Satan uses things like sickness and shipwreck and things to try to wreck our faith. And wreck our usefulness for the kingdom. And uses all sorts of attacks. Not just people hating us. Not just stonings. But all sorts of circumstances. Can either be sufferings that we complain about. And that we think are just chance. And we uh, hate God for them. Or all sorts of circumstances can be redeemed. And cheerfully taken hold of to be sufferings. For the sake of Christ. By having a right attitude in the midst of them. By displaying our joy and our thankfulness to others. For sufferings. Because suffering is a gift from God. No servant is greater than his master. We're not greater than Christ. We don't get to go through the Christian life without suffering. If you do go through the Christian life without suffering, Christ is not your master. That's what Christ says. And so suffering for Christ is essential To the gospel. Um, And more than just uniting us to Christ, our suffering unites us to one another. I want to come back around to striving together. Oftentimes our suffering, we're even selfish, not just with our accomplishments and our righteousness and our good things that we do. Oftentimes we're selfish with our suffering. Do you know what I mean by that? When we're suffering in some way, we want to pull into a dark hole just have me in my suffering and you don't understand me, Um, you don't know my circumstances, you don't have the hard things about my life that I have, I want to keep my suffering to myself and hold on to it and, you know, pet it and have my own little suffering. But we're to suffer with one another. We're to suffer together. Paul says strive together and he says uh, also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul wants them to share in his suffering, and he wants to share in their suffering. And we are to bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Our suffering is something that we share with one another. We should know each other's sins. We should know the relationships in each other's lives that are being a strain. We should be able to ask each other about particular people who we're having interactions with. Unbelievers. We should know about our brothers and sisters relationships with other brothers and sisters. And be helping each other with sin being worked through and dealt with. And we should help bear those burdens with one another. Because we're engaged in battle together. Or we need to be engaged in battle together. Um, and when we are fighting together, carrying each other's burdens. We know what other our brothers and sisters are going through and fighting and dealing with. It strengthens us to be fighting together. And God blesses our fellowship. And when we suffer together, we can do away with building our relationships with one another on frivolous things. When we're suffering, we're required to look to each other for help, for strength, and to preach the gospel to one another. And to preach God's promises to one another and to strengthen one another. If we're not suffering, then we can just go on building our relationships on movies and sports and frivolous worldly things. We need one another if we're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. If you're going to go out and make a fool of yourself with roommates, with co-workers, it's okay. You have the body of Christ. You have brothers and sisters who you can come to. And get strength from. If you're willing. You have brothers and sisters who will bear the burden of you being a fool with you. That's what Christ says. He says even if you lose father and mother and brothers. He will provide many more for you. In the kingdom of God. And so if we're willing to suffer with one another. Then we don't have to fear feeling like a fool. Getting beaten. Getting stoned. Getting shipwrecked. None of those things do we have to fear. So, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means to strive together. It means do not be alarmed by opposition to your faith and suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. There's more to it than that, um, but this is the time that we have. So, let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would grant us the faith to suffer for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, give us your spirit, empower us by your spirit to live lives that are pleasing to you and that honor the gospel of your son. Please strengthen us, help us to build our lives and our relationships on the truth of your word. Um, Not on silly things, but on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending your son to die and redeeming us and bringing us into your kingdom. Help us to live as citizens of that kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.